0: Strawberries on Sunday could be the name of one of her cocktails. But as our guest today revealed, her grandfather would truly only allow his strawberry jam to be enjoyed as a treat on Sunday. The strawberry season in Norway is only 3 weeks after all, and he made jam so they could eat them all year round, and that meant having a little bit only on Sunday to make it last. I'm Susan Schwartz your drinking companion and this is Lush Life Podcast. Every week we are inspired to live life one cocktail at a time by the best in the industry. Monica Berg, one of the glittering stars of the cocktail world, is here with us today. Her journey from Norway to London brought with it a respect for the transience of food at its peak eating time, as well as a keen business savvy thanks to her father making her create budgets from the time she was little. No wonder she can juggle not only the opening of a new bar in London, but also the launch of a new generation of liqueurs. She is also a co-founder of Poor, the non-profit organization devoted to exploring new ideas, sharing information, and exchanging inspiration within the drinks industry. Poor will be holding its first symposium in London, but more about that after we hear all about Monica.
1: I grew up in Oslo, um, majority of the time, um, specifically a little bit outside uh, for the first 14 years. And then my dad moved to Oslo and then I kind of went with him.
0: And and as a child, did you have any interest in food and flavor
1: or anything like that? Um, I think I was very lucky because I grew up in a family where uh, food was quite um, natural or uh, quite a... Uh, normal thing so uh, my mum and my stepdad had a household where it was very um, common for me to have to pitch in from a very early age so having to keep the sourdough alive or to uh, help um, go out and fish in the weekends or harvest anything from like berries in the late summer to mushrooms in the early fall or anything in between, it was kind of just something you had to do. So for me, food was always a very uh, present part. Um, and my great grandfather, he was a farmer. My uncle was a butcher. So you kind of witnessed the whole circle from a very early age. So it was never, it was never kind of this mysterious thing. Um, so even living in a big city, you would go out and forage. Yes, because... Is that that a Norwegian thing to do? It is a very Norwegian (laughs) thing to do, yes. Because I think that um, it's very inherent for Norwegians to want to just use everything that is around you, everything that is free. Um, And it's also just an activity that you would do together as a family. So you would spend time in the forest or in the fields harvesting something, then you would prepare it afterwards. And then you also have to kind of uh, prepare for the rest of the year because if uh, if you grow up in an area like... Oslo, that has, or at least used to have, four very distinctive seasons and some micro-seasons, if you only look at a product or a produce as something um, you can eat at the top of its uh, ripeness, then it becomes very uh, short, the season. Whilst if you, for example, take strawberries, if you only eat strawberries when they are at peak season, it's three weeks maximum, right? But if you can preserve it, if you can uh, make it into jams, if you can uh, make it into uh, syrups cordials, wines whatever, then you can enjoy it 365 days a year which is obviously um, uh, much better, I would
0: say Was there... um a special product or thing that you liked to gather that you remember when you were young like oh I can't wait till mushroom season or
1: maybe it's strawberries um, strawberries definitely my favorite because it was uh, the kind of signature uh, thing of my grandfather on my father's side um, and it was always that you would go, he lives, in, or they used to live in, in the middle of Norway. So it's called often the pantry of Norway. It has amazing berries. Um, and he would always go and pick them, and then you would stir them a little bit of sugar, and then that's it. And then it was only allowed to eat on Sunday breakfast. So you kind of have to like for those three eat. weeks. Yeah. No, no. So he would put them in the freezer, and then like every Sunday breakfast, when it was a special occasion, you would be allowed to have like a piece of bread with the strawberries. It was heaven. <laughs> so now, as an adult, you have strawberries all the time because you can, right? No. well, well, I mean, yes and no because today we are very um, spoiled. We can have strawberries. And 365 days a year, but at the same time, they don't taste like the strawberries of our childhood, not only because of our memory, but also because the strawberries have changed. Of course. So um, I try actually not to eat it uh, when it's not in season because then it becomes so much more precious. No, I agree.
0: I understand too.
1: Yeah. Now, there's a
0: rumor that you started your own bar at 11 years old. And we have to get down to this rumor, <laughs> yes, because that foreshadowed the rest of your life. I have a feeling.
1: Well, I was very adventurous as a child, and although I grew up in um, well, at this point I was growing up in a very small place in uh, just outside of Oslo, um, which was called Vesby, and um, um, my closest neighbors were fields of wheat and animals and these kind of things. So. I always used to, um, every Wednesday, play uh, a game with my dad, which was when he would come home from uh, work, Uh, he would be greeted and uh, um, went through the restaurant experience. And then he would finish upstairs, which was then my bedroom, which was converted into a bar. Um, Where did you even come up with this idea? I don't know. Well, to be honest, I don't know, because I think it was... um, when you go, it's a similar thing to the Boy Scouts or the Girl Scouts, but it's a survival class that you do as a kid, and they give you this handbook, and one of those things were to make your own soda using, not baking powder, but um, I'm, I'm not sure if the for the English words, but basically you take lemon juice, sugar, water, and then you add this baking soda. Something and then it becomes oh, fitting, yeah, yeah yeah whatever bicarb of soda yeah yeah and then uh, I was doing this at home and I was like wow this is fascinating uh, and then I was watching probably Simpsons or something and then <laughs> uh, I was like oh I want to be a bartender yes and then I changed my uh, I refurbished my room uh, into becoming a bar uh, where you had to kind of show your ID when you entered and then you could order uh, obviously I just uh, found an old menu from some holiday or something and then you could order probably a few cocktails and or a beer my dad always ordered the same thing and i would make this homemade soda <laughs> which was horrible um and then uh, it would yeah I, I just really found it very fascinating how you could do do things I, I i liked the chemistry of it but also the same thing with the cooking i really was drawn to cooking but at that age I still wasn't allowed to cook that that much, so I could basically use anything that was below the the counter because all the knives and everything was above, so obviously not cut, cut anything. So regardless what my dad would order, he would always get the same thing, which was basically like half a liter of milk mixed with half a kilo of flour and sprinkled with some cacao. <laughs> and he was like, hmm, this is... Amazing. (laughs) Yes, I love that. (laughs) Yeah, he was, uh, I mean, my parents were very kind of, you know, uh, encouraged uh, creativity in that sense. (laughs) So
0: how long did your love of bartending as a child last? I mean, I mean, as in, did you know that this is what, was going to be your, your, you know, your final pursuit, your profession? Did you always
1: have that in mind since 11? Um, I think I definitely wanted uh, from a very early age, probably at that stage, to work with food or work with flavor or work with, you know. um, I think the bartending part, they came slightly later. Originally, I wanted to become a chef. Uh, but my parents, they didn't uh, necessarily want me to become a chef. I think it has nothing to do with the profession in itself. It was more um, expected uh, from me that I would go down the academic route or the economy or finance route because I also really like numbers um, because I like, I like when things are, can have an answer. Like, in mathematics, there's always an answer, you know? Maybe you can't find the answer, but it doesn't mean that it doesn't exist, you know? Whereas um, I was also very drawn towards law. Um, But um, ultimately, I also kind of like people. So I I think that was the, the last thing that made me... Shift. Mm-hmm.
0: So when you went, did you you went to university? What did, did what did you study?
1: Um, I was. Um, I'm not completely sure what it would be called in uh, in in UK the equivalent, but I I went to business school or business mm-hmm. university. I studied uh, finance and uh, economics, but also uh, journalism as a kind of side thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I never graduated alone uh, because uh, as much as I like going to school, I've always been the, the one of those. <laughs> I always used to love going to school, not mm-hmm. only because um, I enjoy meeting people there, but I also enjoy learning new things. Um, and when I went to school, my parents said that as long as I go to school, I can also uh, work in bars um, in the weekends because it's, it doesn't conflict with the, the hours, it's a very dynamic way of, of working, you be able to subsidize your studies and such and such and then it just the scale kind of, we're tipping from more school, less bartending to less school, more bartending and then eventually I just made the decision. Well why bartending then if you wanted to be a chef? Um, originally, because in Norway you have to choose, uh, if you want to become a chef, in Norway you have to choose that route, educational route, when you are um, 16. Yes. yes. So for me, I did a much more like a general uh, route of education mm-hmm. towards like mathematics, economy, and this kind of academic subjects, I would, I would say.
0: Yeah. Um, Did you think that working behind a bar was going to fulfill you as much as your passion for being a chef or working with food?
1: Um, Yeah, I think that uh, once I kind of saw both sides, because I did uh, a few jobs extra, like extra weekend jobs or something, where it was not as a chef, obviously, but as a cook, maybe. Um, And then I just saw that... Maybe I love cooking, but maybe my cooking is more for myself and my family and less professional. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that um, working with flavors is, is very similar in bartending, but the, everything else is quite different because as a bartender, you also have to have the social aspect of it. You have your kind of there facing the guests. Mm-hmm. And I really like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah so uh, and that was kind of the way and also back then it would was very easy for me to work Friday Saturday um, in the bars and I didn't start in cocktails because this was so many years ago before bartending was how it is now but I used to work in nightclubs which is uh, back then you could walk away with ridiculous money in tips alone Mm -hmm. you know so for me as a student it was amazing because um, you tax tips very differently than your income it was just great but did that
0: kind of bartending make you want to leave school or did something happen or you worked in a special bar where you said oh this could be a profession
1: um to be honest I was I was just very very bored oh. at school um and as much I I just was sitting um and not sitting I was just thinking to myself that if I'm this bored at the age of 20 how's my life <laughs> going to look uh, if I continue down this mm, route of like, course the most fun for me was doing these kind of algorithms that calculate GP, and I was like, you know what, I can do this in the bar as well, you know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> no, well, um, and I have always, I have always been drawn to business. I like business. I like understanding business, but in a perhaps more. Um, um, hands-on way so I mean I my father uh, worked in finance and worked in uh, accounting as well, worked in a little bit of marketing, did very much of this business side and he always used to teach me things that would be useful for later in life like he started making me do b- budgets at 14 <laughs> you know. so but it's, it's now I'm very grateful You know, it's so, fantastic because it's, it's definitely a skill that is useful um, and so when I was when was it? When I was 19, I set up my first company. Um, and so I was doing events, was doing tastings a little bit, not uh, not like today, but um, and it was just very useful to go through that process. And then when I started, bartending 100% when I left my school or left school and I did that for a couple of years but I also started um, doing some classes for a a bartending school um, which was also very interesting because obviously it teaches you how to not just explain something to someone very on the surface but it forces you to really understand something so that you can teach someone that doesn't really know anything about the subject. Mm-hmm. So I was mainly doing about beer. So I used to work for a brewery for, I think it was like five years, and um, not in the brewing capacity, but more in the educational part. And um, so I was invited into the, from this bartending school to do the beer classes. And then things progressed. And um, Again, I'm very kind of happy in a school situation. So eventually they invited me to become a, a full-time teacher as well there. Um, and then eventually they offered me to buy the school, which I did when I was... Uh, you must have been, been their teacher. best teacher ever. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm, I'm it's different... Um, um, it definitely, I really enjoyed it. Mm-hmm. I must say, uh, because and you were teaching bar ma- beer making and just everything to do with beer. Um, actually, was when I worked at the bartending school. Eventually, I was teaching everything, uh, like a very, uh, introductional four week course for bartending, which includes everything from the different spirits categories, and the most common Mm -hmm. cocktails, how to make them, uh, spirits tastings, but also the legislation surrounding how to work in a bar or how to open your bar even, beer, wine, uh, even some flaring, although I did not teach the flaring (laughs) class, I must say. Um, But, yeah, it was a a big step for me, I think, when I was so young. Yeah, 23. um, Because I was like, still... um, 70% 70% of the people attending the classes they were older than me when I started so I was like Ugh, how am I gonna uh, pull this one off and I was very unsure um, in the beginning how this was gonna turn out and I, I talked to my then boss and I said like I don't know if I can pull this off and he's like of course you can uh, you just have to um, focus more of your time on being able to answer the questions so like so that was really for, for when I started until I eventually bought to school when I was 23. I just spent all my spare time, all my free time in reading books. And kind of my goal was always to not know everything about some things but know a little bit about everything you know like and always have an answer so whatever someone would ask you you would either be able to answer it or you would say I'm really sorry I don't know the answer to this but I will find out mm-hmm. and so th- in this kind of way you at least try right mm-hmm. so um, yeah so that was a very interesting um, time for me because obviously I was very young and when you work uh, in a teaching capacity, you have to kind of think about other people rather than yourself. Um, and also, I learned the value of, or not the value, but I understand the the kind of the, the education you get when you work for yourself. You know, when mm-hmm. you're the the when you're the last person in line, there's no one to. As of, we say, where the buck stops. The buck yeah, stops here. Exactly. Right? When you have no one to turn to and ask for advice, then it, it's, you really have to just uh, learn how to make decisions, mm-hmm. which has always been my problem. Because in some, on some areas, I'm very indecisive. Mm-hmm. Like, what am I going to eat for, uh, for breakfast? I have no idea. I was like, because I want everything... But then on other things, I can like... <laughs> it's yeah. too much choice. Yeah. <laughs> yeah,
0: um, yeah. So obviously you saw, this is, okay, this is a profession. At 23, I own a business. Yes. Um, did you ever think of abandoning bartending and just go the educational route? Um,
1: no. Well, I did for a while because mm. after I took over the school at 23, I spent the next four and a half years only oh a long business. time yeah so until you're about 27 28 yes mm-hmm. so i spent the, until 2009 yeah from 2005 to 2009 what drove you back into the bar and um, i was quite lonely oh. because even though i i used to teach like classes which would vary between 20 to 30 people um and that was lovely. And I met so many amazing people through that. But at the same time, um, since you are the teaching, there's no one to spar with. There's no one to brainstorm with. There's no one to, when you have questions, you always have to go and figure out yourself. So just wanted to have, um, I wanted to work with people uh, in a different capacity to be part of a team. So that's when I was uh, approached by this company in Oslo, that we're opening. We're doing a project with the Ice Hotel in Sweden, and it was a joint venture. And they wanted to open a bar which focused really on Nordic flavors and using this kind of local uh, products and stuff like this. And they needed a, a bartender or a bar bar manager, head bartender. It's kind of a little bit fluid. Um, what the title actually was but um, and they approached me and um, I was immediately very keen to work with them because I I was um, I would be able to work with quite a like not prominent I would I, I'm not sure if that's the right word but a quite familiar uh, person in the Oslo bar scenes which has opened a lot of places and he's very good at running Venues and mm-hmm. and uh, and driving it forward, but maybe doesn't have the time to specialize in cocktails. So he's run whiskey bars, beer bars, wine bars, all, and then he just comes as a and at the GM level, and then he invited me to come uh, as a bar manager. So did you have to go every season up to the Ice Hotel? Um, we went once a year. Yes, uh-huh. we did. and We did get to sleep in the rooms and then it was <laughs> your coldest time. <laughs> yes, yeah, yes, yes, it was. Uh-huh. I mean it's I don't know, it's I think in Norway you get you get used to the cold because everything is built to withstand the cold, mm-hmm. you know, like the houses. That's why all inside it's so warm and nice and, you know. <laughs> but it was it was really interesting because it also teaches you that for example, something like the words adventurous or luxury it means different things for different people because uh, or exotic because when I think exotic I think that I want to sit on a beach near a palm uh, drink a <laughs> coconut or something like this that's exotic for me whereas someone who lives in this climate going to the snow going to see the northern light, going to like see the ice hotel to be honest the ice hotel was exotic for me as well. Um, and I remember the first time I, I, I went there they, they because they also wanted to give you the full experience they picked you up at the airport with, and you had to drive your own dog sled back to the hotel and also I think that um, it's it Volvo? I think probably Volvo they have one of their test courses there which you can drive where you can
0: ice, drive. ice yeah. drive
1: which is hilarious because I mean obviously in, in Norway you have to do at least one day of uh, winter drive before you get your license and one of the things that you also do is to go on a course with your teacher obviously and they they just do the full oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> break and you just spin, spin around and it's so much fun and then here you can do it just freelance You just like go. It's so amazing.
0: (laughs) So after that time was over, yes. Did you think, ah, yeah, okay, it's back to cocktails we go? Or yeah, I
1: mean, um, so when I joined this company, it was because they wanted to open an ice bar in Oslo. So we did this in a space that housed three different bars so it was the ice bar it was an event space upstairs uh, and a nightclub uh, a joint as well and then eventually also um, a cocktail bar which um, I was able to open in, in the same space so from 2009 until 2012 13? sorry 2013 I was with this company and it was very um interesting and it was very edu- like a great learning experience for me because I got to work, first of all, within a f- very big corporation and to see how it is to run multiple venues because this company, um, well, the Norwegian side of, of the partnership, uh, they own a bunch of hotels, they own a lot of different bars and restaurants in Oslo, and, and they do a lot of events and stuff. So it was uh, very valuable uh, for me to, to be part there. And also because the cocktail bar was, um, was, I mean, quite experiential. It's, it's very different to, I say, to go out and drink cocktails in Oslo um, 2009, whereas Oslo today, and especially compared to London, for example, because it's not a city that has... Uh, this uh, inherited tradition of drinking cocktails. Mm-hmm. It's much more in beer um, and spirits, whiskey, love whiskey. And so it was more like an introduction to cocktails. So every day, kind of when I opened the, this cocktail bar, which was called Aquavita, like water of life, um, I wanted to really focus on Aquavit. Uh, in cocktails which was not very common at the time and um, I also wanted to really be a cocktail bar which meant that um, I think sometimes you have to go to the extreme to if you want to prove a point and then once you've proven that point you can kind of loosen up a little bit so when we opened uh, I took away all beer So we were probably one of the first or few bars in Oslo that didn't serve beer whatsoever, (laughs) which was a little bit controversial uh, because we were also in the middle of the city center. Mm -hmm. So you have a lot of um, guests that would expect to find beer. So for I think for the first four months, um, every day when I was at work, and someone would tell me that I was the worst bartender they had ever met. This was the worst bar they had ever been to. They couldn't wait for it to go. Uh, oh, no way, really. Because Only because they couldn't get a beer. Yeah, but, I mean, did yeah, you say, well, there's a beer
0: next door? There are a billion other bars you can go to to get yeah. beer. This is the, the Aqua place.
1: Yeah, but people, people like what they know. Sometimes, you know. So, and and to be honest. It was fine. I knew that that was going to happen, and I was prepared for it. It's a little bit of an extreme response to not getting a
0: beer to say, this is the worst bar I've ever ever been to. (laughs) Did (laughs) you say, well, if you like beer, try this cocktail with Aquavit?
1: No, no, no. And and to be honest, it was... um, I think if I wasn't prepared for it, I would have probably found it very rough or tough. But um, uh, I achieved what I wanted, that... Slowly, slowly, you build a very, and we did build a very loyal um, group of guests that would come because they knew it was cocktails and because they wanted to be part of that kind of place. Mm -hmm. Um, And then once we achieved that... Then, of course, we slowly reintroduced beer because, I mean, I have a beer background. I love beer, so I would never want to... How long did it take between from the time you started to the first beer coming in? It took uh, six months. Oh,
0: all right. So So not not, so long. It's not like three years. And and what a lucky beer company to be the first beer allowed into your bar.
1: No, to be honest, it was more like... um, Yeah, I mean... When we reintroduced it, we reintroduced it in a way that we had one very generic lager, uh, which is sometimes it's what you want next to your cocktail. You mm. just have it as a thirst. Country. With an Aquavit yeah. chaser. Exactly. Right. Exactly. And then uh, we used to have like a rotating bear of the mouth or anything. Because I would think that even if you focus on cocktails, uh, you should still be able to accommodate um mm. What guests wants needs you know now the big question,
0: one of many big questions, I'm <laughs> sure I'm going to ask you, um you're doing so well in Oslo, <laughs> why come to London?
1: Why come to London? well, London, because of love, I guess <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I was almost going to say, was it love, yeah okay. yeah um I mean the The decision to move to London was purely made because this is where Alex was uh, living. So oh, still lives <laughs> to be honest. Just so yes. you <laughs> know, Alex is one of the most famous bartenders
0: in the world. And so I guess I have to ask: How did you meet? Did you
1: in in Oslo? No, no, no. So I mean, we met a few times, uh, just in passing uh, during uh, f- or. Through industry events. Mm -hmm. Um, I think the first time I actually saw him was probably during London Cocktail Week one year. There was uh, this, um, I think it was a seminar in Artesian, which he worked at the time. Um, So you were coming back and forth to London? Just a few times, Uh
0: just through probably, I think it was probably. Through class or right, something for work like this. work related things, we won't go into too many, int- yeah. d- you know, intimate details here. No, but
1: you had met him
0: and met and him. You then. developed a relationship, obviously.
1: Well, I mean the 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 time that we well until, well, the first time we met, where we really had a chance to speak and had a like chance to 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 meet properly, was during. Tales of the Cocktail in 2012 Um, and that's where we had our first date Um, and since then we pretty much just stuck together.
0: (laughs) So Love called, he was working here and you decided that you wanted to make this your home.
1: Yeah. so I mean... Everything happened very fast. To be honest, we met in Tell's two thousand twelve, and then it was very much. We are very lucky that we travel for work, so we could meet up at different trade shows uh, during the fall. Like we could always plan our travel so that we would be at the uh, in the same place at the same time. But also, like there's just so long that you can do this. So I think we had discussions. Sometimes it was probably just a brief conversation, like, "Oh, maybe you should move to." Oslo. Maybe you should move to London because he did actually uh, offer to move to Oslo, and I was like, that makes absolutely no sense. <laughs> but um, yeah, so then I decided to come to to London. So I think I gave my notice within six months from my Now there are tons of bars and places to work. Yes. In London. Mm-hmm.
0: Um, did you have in mind one place in particular before you came?
1: No, no, no because so when i came here i was so nervous i was very very um aware that oslo is a small city even though it's a capital it's a small city it's 600,000 people it's we always like to say it's big enough so you can meet new people but it's also uh, no, it's small enough so you can meet your friends and big enough so that you can hide from the ones that you don't like or something <laughs> like this. I don't know. It's, it doesn't make sense maybe as much in English. But um, And when I came, I was very aware that I would have to work really hard to just understand the local market, to understand the legislation, to adapt here. So I was very um, prepared to go in and just uh, as a... Bar back or junior bartender, just worked my way up. Uh, but then I was very lucky because I competed in in world class in 2013, um, and then I met Gareth Evans, who at that, that time was working for Poland Street Social and the Social Company, um, and then this company was growing, uh, opening new venues. So. I saw, it was the most random thing ever, actually, I saw he posted on Facebook that they needed a new um, bar manager or head bartender for Pond Street Social. I said, hmm, I, would li- I wouldn't mind working in a restaurant. Uh, I really like food. I w- like working with chefs. Um, I Maybe I can go and see. And I just sent him a text, and I was like, can I be considered? And then he showed me around the place a week later, and then he's like, if you want to come and work here you can work here (laughs) and one of the most exciting restaurants in London yeah it was amazing Mm -hmm. Um, it was yeah it was really um, I still remember my first day probably I was just following around and watching everyone and I was like wow this is you know how they say we're not in Kansas anymore (laughs) or this kind of expression I was like wow Um, and for me it was just a dream Mm -hmm. come true because Um, the precision um, that they applied to the food was really impressive. Um, And I just, for the first time in my life, I just felt like, wow, I can say that I want all the cucumbers to be cut at 0.2 millimeters and to a 40 degree angle. Nobody looks at me like I'm crazy. (laughs) This is crazy. (laughs) You know, so it's, I really... I feel that that space is a very special. It's very special to me, uh, still to this day, and um, and I was, I really enjoyed being part of that team. Yeah, it was. Uh, it was because when I think at least when I grew up, uh, not child grew up, but uh, in my younger years as a bartender, when you read about or hear about the Michelin star foods or Michelin star restaurants and all this fine dining, how much it requires, how much um, attention to detail, passion, how much effort you have to put into it, everything. You you make it into something that is very unapproachable, very, very like special occasion, blah blah, blah. Mm. But then when I came to Palm Street and it's it, it is a Michelin star restaurant and still there was something so like casual or so, so, so approachable with it. Like, we had uh, regulars that lived in the area that would sometimes come in uh, straight from the gym with a tennis record or, like, football and shoes or whatever, and they'd just, like, sit down, have a coffee, and then go home. Yes, I think know? that's so, the genius
0: of his of yeah. his restaurants and his so, style.
1: Because, I mean, and I think that it was really capturing the kind of modern British... Uh, not just cooking, but also living. Uh, whereas, like, it doesn't always have to be posh to be a treat or to be mm-hmm. kind of well-executed, very attention to detail, very mm-hmm. modern luxury, in a sense, you know? now exactly. Yeah. So I was really, uh, really enjoyed it. And I really enjoyed kind of working with um, Garrett, who was my... Uh, bar manager um, at the time because also for me it was um, he allowed me this freedom to do what I wanted to do without having all of these rules imposed kind of thing yeah so I I really enjoyed it
0: well now you're going to be free to do whatever (laughs) you want because you're opening your own bar I know (laughs) and I guess all of the things that you've learned over the years are going to be put into this. Teheran yes. Um. Taylorin elementary. Hmm. Um. Talk me through the process of you thinking about and, and starting this with um, Alex. Well, I think
1: now, obviously, it's been this three-four year project. Uh, I left Poland Street in uh, end of no, beginning of two thousand fifteen. End of end of 2014 and I realized that I do like working in restaurants and I do like working with other people but also I do enjoy making my own decisions So, and I've always dreamt about opening my own bar and I just felt that you know what, now is the time because if it doesn't happen now, it probably will will never happen. So Tayer Elementary is kind of our dream bar it's the it's the collective uh, experiences and uh, knowledge that we've learned over two decades in this industry so when you enter the space it's not far from here actually it's in old street so it when you enter uh, you will find elementary which is kind of an all-day fast casual very casual place almost like if you imagine going to the pub is the same as going to elementary, but elementary focuses slightly more on cocktails. So we have um, uh, worked with some partners from Norway to develop um, a system that uh, uses cocktails on draft, so taptails. and. Um, we will focus very much on seasonality and uh, the same with the chefs, of course. And then uh, during the day, because we will open at 11.30, uh, we will have bottomless coffee, uh, lunch, um, also cocktails, obviously. Um, And that's just because we want to really be an integrated part of our community. Mm -hmm. So uh, the bottomless coffee is purely because... Uh, first of all we don't have space for a barista machine so we're doing only filter but we're doing kind of best filter that we can imagine you know so um, we see a lot of uh, younger uh, professionals in this area that maybe don't have come to the point in their career where they can uh, afford an office so they can come and work from our space if they want as long as you don't leave the place physically, you can continue to drink the coffee all day. You know that's why it's bottomless. <laughs> so um, and then in the evening it will be uh, like I said, um, as if a cocktail bar was a pub. A very like casual, very low price point. The cocktail starts from seven fifty and then on upwards depending what's inside. Um, and uh, it's really. Cr- laid out as a social place so uh, the bar goes over into a communal table um, and then there's additional seating in the window but other than that it's just a very kind of efficient uh, design room and then you walk uh, into the back which uh, you will open up into taller, which is um, Spanish for workshop we just changed it so it's more phonetically in English the same pronunciation, which just means that it's a space where nothing is ever finished. Uh, It's a space where everything is a work in progress. Uh, We focus on flavor, and the most important thing is to make something that is delicious, uh, maybe adventurous, maybe um, something you have never seen before. So we always say that in Thayer, You probably won't come uh, and find all your favorite cocktails or beers or wine, but you will always find something new, something different, something you probably never tried before. And that's kind of the way that we want it Always a surprise, always growing. Exactly. And that we are trying to establish very um, kind of close connections to farmers to local producers but also to the local council so that we can for example with farmers we can buy directly from the farmers so that uh, fruits for example that they can't sell elsewhere we're happy to to take because obviously we are a bar we don't necessarily need the fruit to be pretty we just need it to be flavorful Mm -hmm. so uh, we can also buy very small uh, quantities so you know sometimes you see that some of the wine companies they If they have to break a case, they have problems selling the reminder of the case because who can take two bottles of wine? Well, we can, you know, like, because we can change the menu every day if we want to. And we just wanted um, kind of a dream bar where, or our dream bar, where everything is always challenging, moving, and interesting for us, but also for the guests. And then next to the bar, we have an open kitchen uh, where we work with um, Anna and Meng, which is of uh, Tata Eatery, uh, which will be responsible for all the food and their food is uh, deliciously flavorful. So it's very difficult to pin down into just a few words, but it's uh, basically food that you really want to eat when you're drinking, and but also... Um, I think we term coined the term uh, "dirty posh," you know, like it's a little, it's it's not posh, but it's not completely street either. Mm-hmm. It's just some kind of thing in between. Um, and then in the back we have uh, this kind of creative space where, uh, in the daytime, you can open it up, and then we will have all the like equipment, uh, like a rotovap or centrifuge, or these kind of things that we use for the prep. But then when it's not needed, we can just close it off so it becomes a communal table and space where you can do like tastings or uh, trainings, we have kind of uh, we, we will move all of our private or personal books into this space so we'll finally have a house again, <laughs> no <I'm> kidding <laughs> we'll um, make a library for the staff or for the guests, so they can come and just read the books if they want to and um, yeah and, and it's kind of it's a big work in progress to be honest so it's very exciting. Well I know one thing that will always be on the menu probably probably
0: is your mm-hmm. new liqueur.
1: Well which you've just also launched as well. Yes, yes. It's Moiju. Um, <laughs> yes, yes. It's it's funny how the universe always kind of decides for you and when things are supposed to happen because we also has been a project that we worked for for years with Alex and Simon, uh, Simon, sorry, um, and yeah, we just launched it I think less than a month ago almost. So it was really exciting. Um, I mean, when the guys left their their previous job, we just had a conversation and we said like Let's do something different. Let's do something." that we would never have had the chance or time to do before. Let's go and explore. And then we went on this trip to uh, Peru and uh, in, into the Amazon with uh, Luis, and, and um, a Barton from Lima, and uh, his uh, chef uh, uh, partner, who is uh, Pedro Miguel Stefano, uh, who is really one of the pioneers in using Amazonian ingredients. Um, and we got to go along with them into the Amazon. and, and it was just you no know, one of those experiences that even as you are living it, you realize that this is gonna change you forever. Mm-hmm. Um, And that was this experience because, first of all, we we wanted to uh, explore new ingredients, which we did. And we thought that we knew a lot and we realized we know nothing. (laughs) Um, Or that there's so much more to learn. Yes. Right. (laughs) You do know something. (laughs) Exactly. There's more to learn. And then we we got to live with this uh, ethnic community outside of Iquitos, um, where you realize... That maybe your values are not the right uh, values, or maybe you need to change your priorities and and kind of your choices. So, um, we really wanted to do something uh, that can could contribute to the preservation of the biodiversity of the Amazon, uh, but also the people that live there, because the people they were very, they were very open and welcoming to us so we wanted to also to support them back um, obviously our initial idea is like oh let's use all these amazing new products that we've found or ingredients that we found and then you have a second thought and you realize that you're stupid you're almost like an idiot because the worst thing you can do if you want to preserve the Amazon is to take something from the Amazon and make it into a commercial product. Mm -hmm. So we realized this is not the way to go. Let's have another think and let's say, okay, so let's look at it from a different perspective and say, you know what, uh, if this trip could show us how little or how much we have to learn um, on, on ingredients, let's look at ingredients that are already around us but maybe not utilized yet. And we've all kind of had this... Uh, affinity for um, perfumes, um, so it was. It became very um, natural to go down that route. Um, but we also realized that as bartenders, like the only thing that we can do that could actually make a difference is to make something that you can drink. <laughs> um, and we didn't really want to be like a small upstart for many, many, many years, and then not have the the opportunity to make a difference until year 10. So what we decided was to kind of do a business case and then we decided to pitch the business to a few companies and we pitched it to De Kuiper, uh, which uh, was, uh, to be honest, it was kind of the, the perfect match uh, because... There was a few things that were very important for us. And one, of course, as a true bartender, uh, we always want creative freedom. <laughs> um, but also we uh, wanted parts of the profits to be uh, spent on different NGOs that works to preserve the Amazon. Um, and uh, they immediately said that they thought that was a great idea and they would also match... Uh, our donation so uh, that was very um, uh, a very good day when we uh, mm-hmm. agreed on that and then obviously it was been a, such a long uh, learning curve how to develop a brand from idea to finished product because as a bartender this is a process that you normally don't see so it has actually taken closer to three years um, and then I, I think even now, like last month when I tasted the first like commercially bottled version of the product, um, even though everything is done by hand, um, you kind of sit and think, wow, I made this. I mean, I didn't physically make it, but I made this recipe, yeah, I made course. this this thing, uh, and it, actually people like it, because this is the, the big thing, it's so scary. Um, to have people taste it and like, whoa, what if, what if they don't like it? What if they think it's like this? What if they think this? What if they think that? And, and and you have to kind of try to distance yourself and think, okay, so even if they don't like the product, it doesn't mean that they don't like me. <laughs> well, it's interesting <laughs> that you would have
0: those concerns and you, but all three of you, are at the top of your field and obviously know flavors well enough to have run some of the best bars in the world, that you still have that insecurity of what if someone's not going to like it? I mean, how did you even come up? There are three flavors. Why don't you tell me about the
1: flavors and how you came up, at least with yours? Yeah, so, um, I mean, we each individually made our own flavor, even though we did advise amongst ourselves. Um, And we did also have advice from uh, the corporate team um, I think the reason why I can't remember completely but I think the reason why we made three different flavors was because we couldn't agree on one <laughs> <laughs> and so <clears throat> and we to be honest we also just wanted uh, we wanted to create a brand that has the potential to expand or to grow uh, so uh, for me, The reason why I chose jasmine is because I love jasmine 2% of the time and 98% of the time I really dislike it. And I wanted to see if I could make something that would be within those 2%. Uh, Because it's such a fragile flavor uh, or aroma to me. Like, it could either be too, like... Fresh, like a toilet cleaner, kind of synthetic. By the way, I totally agree with you. <laughs> yeah. All right, yeah. Like and a candle way, sometimes is way yeah. too much. You think, I do like it poor. as a flower, but what has gone wrong? Exactly. And then it can go on the other side, uh, which is like the decay, almost uh, dead an- farm animal kind of thing. Um, and I remember because my when my dad retired, he um, sold his house and then he bought like a... Uh, out in Spain, and outside of his uh, apartment, or, um, there's a jasmine tree, mm-hmm. and then sometimes it's just like, you sit there and you're just like, wow. And other times it's like, oh, this is horrible. So I just wanted to see if I could do that, and that's why it was so difficult. I thought it was going to be slightly easier, but it was very difficult. Then. But I did learn uh, kind of my superpower uh, sort of thing, and, like, pretending superpower, but it's basically that when we tasted all the jasmines, so we did um, a blind taste where we had, I think, almost 30 different jasmines, and half of them you could take away just by smell. You just said, nope, nope, nope. And then eventually you sat, cut down, 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 um, and we uh, ended up with one. I said, this is it. This is my favourite, to be honest. It was probably, like... This one, <laughs> um, and then uh, the technician that was helping us, he, um, Henkian, he was saying like, "Oh well, congratulations! That's also the most expensive version of jasmine in the world, <laughs> of course." from grass, I was like, "Yes, that's my superpower." <laughs> yeah, and also it's, um, but I think it was such a fantastic experience because some of these ingredients that we are using is not necessarily. Uh, unusual for bartenders to use. Bartenders use jasmine all the time, but most of the time, the jasmine that uh, bartenders can access is through jasmine tea, varying from really bad jasmine tea to perhaps good jasmine tea. But it's still using this kind of third ingredient as a carrier, which is the tea. Whereas this jasmine mm-hmm. that we could, that we were able to use now, is some of the best jasmine coming from grass. And from, uh, and it was just a kind of revelation when we were sitting there tasting everything and smelling everything, that, wow, I've always loved jasmine or neroli or pettigrain or uh, even, like, yuzu or any kind of ingredients, but I've never been able to try it at this level of quality. Mm. And you're just like, wow. So it was... um, That was a really cool experience. And then um, for the liqueur, um, it has kind of jasmine as the main uh, accent. And then we attach the color to it, which is kind of the feeling that we are going for. So for mine, it's jasmine vert, which is green. So I wanted it to be quite bright, zesty, little um, summery, if summer was a flavor. Um, So I... I, um, Accented it with some distilled yuzu. There's a little bit of neroli, which also has these kind of uh, green, zesty, citrusy notes. Um, But if, I think, if jasmine becomes too pretty, then it's boring. So I grounded it with a little bit of patchouli. And then uh, some iris. And iris was kind of one of the last additions. And it was just, it was fantastic because it, almost acts like a belt. It just like makes everything tight and in, in structured. So it was that was kind of when we added that it was just, yes, that's it. Let's stop. <laughs> um, and then also I wanted it to have acidity. So there's uh, some acidity there. There's not from my understanding in the liqueur world not too much sugar, there's uh, 200 grams of sugar per liter, Mm -hmm. Uh, and then 24 ABV. And so two of the liqueurs have the same ABV. They all have the same uh, sugar content, but two of them have the same uh, ABV, which is 24, and that's jasmine and kinoto. Um, And then the vetiver grease is uh, 22. And the reason why they're different is that we basically started in the low end and the high end, and then we just went into the middle and we stopped where the flavor said, this is where I like it. (laughs) So it's a flavor-led decision. That's why they are different. Um, And I don't know, we we kind of just wanted to make a product that was slightly different, uh, but also something that is very much um, the flavor of now. You know the, the flavor of of something that you recognize, but it's still um, unknown. Something that is um, giving bartenders a new kind of palette to work with. But at the same time, if you don't want to do anything, uh, you don't have to. You can drink it neat. You can drink it on ice. You can. Uh, we only design these kind of highballs. Um, uh, to kind of be the, the serve because I think that bartenders will do whatever they want to do anyway. I I know I would have done or I will. So um It's like going into Peru. Yeah. I mean it's, they, they, it's as be, in
0: you going into something that you know but you are not un, unsure
1: about. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, and to be honest the Highballs the reason for that was because we wanted the Highballs to be um uh, not necessarily contrasting, but a little bit um, show a different side of the liqueurs uh, when they are a highball. Uh, but also, we always ask ourselves like, is this something that my mom could do? Um, and if it's a no, then maybe we should rethink it because uh, my mom would probably yes, she would make a highball, fill the glass with ice, may do a shot and top up with hmm. for my in my case it's champagne, but anything more than that she would probably not want to do mm-hmm. you know because she doesn't have any experience making drinks nor does she have any interest she likes drinking them and oh, that sounded wrong sorry mm-hmm. <laughs> but no no she she would enjoy drinking it but she wouldn't want to make it you know and i think that's this case for for many people
0: absolutely in fact you're making me thirsty <laughs> so can we go try one now oh absolutely all right Thanks so much to Monica for being on the show. Keep an eye out for and Elementary to open in May, but you is on the menu in London right now at the Punch Room at the London Edition Hotel, the Savoy Hotel, Fair Bar and Canteen, Demon Wise and Partners, and Pacifico. As promised, here is Monica again to tell us all about Poor's next symposium in London, and then we will head to our cocktail of the week.
1: So, um, Pour is a non-profit organization uh, which is um, working to kind of champion education within our industry uh, to to support uh, local communities that grow, produce, uh, or make uh, products for the drink or food industry. Uh, we really want to kind of make education, make knowledge, make. Uh, ideas, something that is accessible for everyone. Because I think that in the drinks industry, often if you are privileged like myself that live in a big city, in a market that is very, um, very, um, how can you say it, um, dynamic, very um, happening, very, very. Uh, Focus on cocktails. It's very easy to get uh, invited to distilleries and learn about how you distill, or lo- get to read these books, or access. You have access to internet, and you can read about it online. But some of our colleagues they live in other places in the world, but we still want them to to be able to access the same information as ourselves. So that's why we created an online platform where we share all the content that we uh, we curate or co- uh, create. Um, and our main um, activation or event of the year is our Poor Symposium. So for the first three years, uh, we have been based in Paris. And then this year will be the first year that we are going to be in London. So we, are, uh, find, we have found a great venue in Village Underground, which is not far from here as well. Um, in Shoreditch Um, and it will be a day where we have talks that are curated under the theme of understanding and we try to always be listening to what our community uh, says they want uh, and then combining it with what perhaps uh, we feel could be useful um and then so this year we have everything from uh, Jeffrey Morgenthal coming to talk about bartending because he's a very um very uh, skilled bartender he's run multiple uh, operations he also has a long experience in everything from cocktails to hosting to to running service we have um, Isabella Della Rag- Ragiona I'm pardon my italian sorry <laughs> but she's um agronomist uh, from uh, Italy, so her work is very much about preserving heritage, fruit uh, and vegetable species, because if they disappear, so does flavour. Um, we have um, Lisa Aben, who is a very uh, skilled and accomplished journalist. Uh, we have a um, Bryony Matthews, who's a neuroscientist and a diplomat, uh, talking about empathy and how you can use that in negotiating, uh, whether it's the kind of negotiating she does or the kind of negotiating we do. So it's, uh, it's really about um, our goal is always to, to kind of create um, a symposium that is deserving of our peers basically. Um, and then we also do uh, projects uh, to kind of support communities around the world. Our first project was in um, in the Amazon in, in uh, Peru as well, um, where we supported um, this production of a sauce called Aji Negro. And it, it was a, a collaboration project with four different communities, communities, um, no, actually, that's wrong. It was originally intended to be for different communities. It ended up being 14, I think, and almost 40 uh, women um, to to create this social company where they can actually um, keep all of the profits of, of their labor. Um, and, yeah, I think it's just poor. It's, it's for the industry, by the industry, and hopefully, uh, despite being... Um, kind of in Paris and then now London, we hope that it will be a global thing eventually um, and travel around uh, to everyone.
0: Our cocktail of the week is, of course, a simple Muyu highball. All you need are 50 ml of Muyu Jasmine Verre and 100 ml of champagne. Add the Muyu to a champagne glass and then slowly add the champagne. Then, swirl it around gently with your champagne stirrer. So easy all of our mothers could do it. You'll find this recipe and all the cocktails of the week at alushlifemanual.com where you'll also find all the ingredients in our shop. Next time, I'll be reporting what I found in Charleston including one distillery that has won Garden and Gun Magazine's Best of the South. Did you see the new cocktail collection at alushlifemanual.com slash merch? There's now something for everyone. Until next time, bottoms up. Thanks for listening to the Lush Life Podcast. For more information and links to everything you've heard, plus a whole lot more, please visit alushlifemanual.com. Always remember the wise words of Oscar Wilde, all things in moderation, including moderation, and always drink responsibly. Okay, I said that last part. Theme music is by Stephen Shapiro and used with permission. Lush Life is produced by Evo Terra. And I'm your drinking partner, Susan Schwartz. I'll see you at the bar.